Welcome to the story of Athlone Castle. Together we will explore tales of bitter battles fought, territories won and lost, tales of bravery and sacrifice. A visit to Athlone Castle allows you to walk in the footsteps of kings, presidents, soldiers and generals. Positioned near the centre of Ireland, Athlone has been at the centre of Irish history for millennia. The town developed on Ireland's longest river, the Shannon. The Shannon runs through the heart of the story of the town. The name Athlone comes from an ancient Irish legend. The beautiful Estu, the wife of Na, had a lover named Bwyd. Every evening, Bwyd, along with his foster brother Luan, transformed themselves into two birds and flew into Nar's hall where they sang an enchanting song to lull Nar into a deep sleep. As he slumbered, Bweed shared Estu's bed. Nar was completely unaware of the nighttime enchantments until a druid whispered in his ear that he was being tricked and that the birds were in fact Bweed and Luan. The very next evening, Nar lay in wait and when the birds appeared, he cast a single stone from his sling. The stone struck both birds, and Bweed was killed immediately, but the mortally wounded Luan managed to escape. Estu, unable to live without her lover, died of a broken heart. The fatally wounded Luan eventually reached a ford on the Shannon where he finally succumbed to his injuries. The place where Luan collapsed and died became known as Luan's Ford, in Irish, Athluan. That later became anglicised to Athlone. Exploring Athlone's Past Around 10,000 years ago, at the end of the Ice Age, most of Ireland was covered first by thick hazel scrub and then by dense forest, making journeys through the countryside difficult and arduous. Rivers were used as roads at this time and the Shannon became an important transport route. Evidence of human activity from this period in the distant Irish past, known as the Mesolithic or Middle Stone Age, has been discovered not far from Athlone at Lochbora in County Offaly where archaeologists uncovered the remains of a small campsite on the edge of a vast, ancient lake. At this time, people lived as semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers, fishing for salmon, trout and eels, and hunting animals like wild boar and birds. The adoption of agriculture was perhaps the single greatest advance in human history. Populations began to grow and permanent settlements were established. This great revolution spread slowly from the Near East and arrived in Ireland soon after 4000 BC. One of the initial challenges for Ireland's first farmers was to clear the dense woodland that covered the country. Using polished stone axes and fire, swathes of the forest were cut back to clear fields for farming. The first animals to be introduced were cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, and the first crops were wheat and barley. Evidence of settlement around Athlone during the time can be seen with the elaborate megalithic tombs of Mehemboy and Scrag. 
Numerous polished stone axes were found in the river at Athlone, showing the importance of the ford stretching back through the mists of time. Metalworking began in Ireland around 2500 BC. The knowledge of working copper is thought to have spread to Ireland from continental Europe. The earliest Irish copper mines were in the southwest. As time moved on, the knowledge of metalworking became more sophisticated and copper was mixed with tin to produce bronze. A number of important Bronze Age artefacts, including a small bronze shield, bronze axe heads, swords, spearheads, dress ornaments and gold collars have been recovered from the River Shannon at Athlone. Water had a deeply religious significance for the people of the Bronze Age and placing such valuable items in the waters of the ford suggests that the river and land where Athlone stands today was an important and sacred place. One of the most important ancient ceremonial centres of Ireland, the Hill of Ishnach, is located about 30 kilometres to the east of Athlone. It was believed to have been a place of settlement and ceremony for millennia. Christianity came to Ireland's shores over 1,500 years ago, and monasteries were established all over the country. Ireland was renowned as a land famed for piety, learning and art. It became known as the Island of Saints and Scholars. Clonmacnoise, once one of the most important monasteries in early medieval Ireland, is located close to Athlone and is a wonderful place to explore. Clonmacnoise was established in the 6th century by St. Ciaran. Like Athlone, Clonmacnoise stood on another important crossing point of the Shannon and it developed into a large, bustling centre that became known as Ciaran's Shining City. Monasteries were places of industry as well as prayer and the monks operated farms, mills and produced intricate metalwork and sculpture. Historical and archaeological evidence suggests that there may also have been a small monastery at Athlone. The graves of important people were often marked by recumbent stone slabs incised with elaborate crosses and bearing the deceased's name with the request to pray for their salvation. One slab on display commemorates Alil al-Dunkaho, a king of Connacht who died in 764 AD. Another has a unique depiction of the evangelists St. Mark and St. Luke. The wealth, power and fame of the Irish monasteries made them prime targets for attack. These assaults were mainly by raiders in search of plunder and even occasionally by rival monasteries. However, the most vicious and greatest threat came from outside Ireland, from the Vikings who first raided in 795. The annals record that in 845 a Viking warlord was based on Loch Ree, until he was captured and drowned by the Irish. Almost a hundred years later, the Vikings of Limerick, led by Olaf the Scabby-Headed, ravaged the midlands of Ireland from their base on Loch Ree. Olaf was captured by his great rivals, the Vikings of Dublin, who destroyed his boats during a battle on the lake. In the early medieval period, Ireland was divided into over a hundred basic territorial units known as Tuath, each ruled by a petty king. Some of these kings were overlords of a number of Tuaths and became regional rulers 
and a few would occasionally become powerful enough to be declared High King of Ireland. One of the most powerful dynasties were the O'Connors of Connacht in the west of Ireland. Perloch O'Connor accelerated the development of Athlone in 1129 by constructing a wooden fort that protected a large bridge over the River Shannon. This new bridge connected the west of the country with the east and transformed Athlone into a gateway for his attacks on the eastern kingdom of Meath, where the annals record he inflicted slaughter like unto the Day of Judgment. His son, Rory, would play a key role in the story of medieval Ireland. Athlone Castle's first 400 years. Despite the power of the Irish kings, political divisions in Ireland gave the Anglo-Normans of Wales and England an opportunity to intervene in Irish affairs. The first Normans landed in the southeast of Ireland in 1169. Athlone's position on the main river crossing of the Shannon made it a key strategic target for the advancing Norman forces. They reached Athlone before 1200, and under the command of Geoffrey de Constantine, they established a mott and bailey on or near the site of the old O'Connor fort. A mott was a large, steep-sided earthen mound with a wooden or stone tower on the flattened surface of the summit. The mound was surrounded at the base by the bailey, which was an area enclosed by more ditches and wooden palisades. The bailey protected all the other buildings needed by the garrison, including barracks, forges, workshops and stables. The present castle began to take its shape in 1210, when King John of England ordered his Irish governor, John de Grey, to build a stone fort. However, just one year after it was constructed, the stone tower collapsed, killing nine men. The castle was quickly rebuilt, and historical records show significant amounts of money were spent on its maintenance and refortification throughout the late 13th and early 14th centuries. More fascinating evidence of medieval Ireland can be discovered at Rindoon, north of Athlone on the west shore of Loch Ree, where the ruins of a medieval town, church and castle can still be explored. Athlone Castle was the scene of a number of attacks and raids as it became embroiled in a ferocious tug-of-war between the Gaelic-Irish and Anglo-Norman forces. During the chaos that engulfed Ireland in the wake of the Scottish Bruce invasion of 1315, the O'Connor King of Connacht seized the opportunity to attack the distracted Anglo-Normans and launched an assault on Athlone and burned the town. The castle changed hands between the English and Gaelic-Irish many times during the medieval period until it was finally recaptured by English forces in 1537. It was recorded that the Castle of Athlone, standing upon a passage betwixt Connacht and these parts, is recovered, which has long been usurped by the Irish. The castle became a residence of the king's governor, and in 1567, a new stone bridge was built that allowed the English troops to quickly deploy to the west of Ireland when needed. In 1569, the English had sufficient control of the region to establish the Presidency of Connacht 
that was based in Athlone. However, the region was still not pacified. Shortly afterwards, in 1573, an army of Scottish warriors, gunners and mercenary soldiers, led by the rebel James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, burned the town on the eastern bank of the Shannon. Sir Nicholas Malby, described in contemporary sources as forward, valiant, wise and resolute, took up residence in Athlone Castle and became provincial president in 1579. He was succeeded by Sir Richard Bingham, who became known as the Flail of Connacht, as he was a feared and brutal character. He ruthlessly executed shipwrecked Spanish Armada survivors, except for two that he held for ransom and imprisoned in Athlone Castle. Athlone was threatened by the forces of Hugh O'Neill at the end of the 16th century. The rebels burned and destroyed many farms in the region. They approached Athlone with a force of 1,500 men. However, they found that the people of Athlone remained loyal to the English authorities, and so, without any support, the rebels withdrew. Nevertheless, the early 17th century was a time of growth and development for Athlone. An active merchant class thrived. The town became a borough corporation that was entitled to return two representatives to the Irish Parliament. Town wall fortifications and gatehouses were built to protect the town. The locks of the North Gate and Dublin Gate are on display. In 1641, another large rebellion erupted in Ireland. The Catholic gentry, whose political and economic power was in decline, were increasingly concerned about the rise of puritanical and anti-Catholic feeling in the English and Irish parliaments. They launched a rebellion, though it quickly got out of hand, and poorly controlled rebels terrorised, expelled and murdered the Protestant settlers. Eventually, the rebellion developed into a broader organised political revolt across Ireland, and the Catholic Confederacy was formed to assert a degree of independence. Athlone Castle was surrounded and cut off by rebel forces in an attempt to starve the garrison into surrender. The soldiers and their families were saved by a temporary truce that allowed a relief force to escort most of the garrison and Protestant inhabitants of Athlone back to the safety of Dublin. By a cunning ruse, the Irish Confederate forces gained control of Athlone Castle by exploiting the conflicting and confused loyalties of the remaining garrison. The unrest in Ireland coincided with the English Civil War and the rise of Oliver Cromwell. After his victory in England, Cromwell brought the veteran troops of his new model army to Ireland, where his short, brutal campaign smashed resistance. Cromwell's forces captured a succession of Irish towns, including Athlone. By 1653, all resistance had ended and Ireland was in Cromwell's iron grip. He showed little sympathy to the defeated Irish Catholics. Many were killed in the latter stages of the war. Supporters of the Confederacy had their lands confiscated. Many Catholic landowners were moved across the Shannon to poorer and smaller estates in the west of Ireland, giving rise to the bleak phrase, To hell or to Connacht. Athlone was the administrative centre for this enforced resettlement of Catholic landowners. By the 1670s, Athlone's importance waned, 
following the abolition of the Connacht Presidency. The castle and much of the town was granted to the Earl of Renla, a key financier of the flamboyant King Charles II, who had been restored to his throne following the death of Cromwell. Despite its decline, Athlone Castle continued to be an important strategic asset, and its defences would soon be put to the test again, as once more the shadow of war fell on Ireland. The Path to War Ireland became a theatre of war for European and religious politics in the 1690s. The unpopular Catholic King of England, James II, was overthrown by a union of English Protestant parliamentarians. They invited his Dutch son-in-law, William of Orange, to become King of England, Scotland and Ireland. William crossed to England in 1688 and he quickly gained support across the land. James fled to France, where he was received into the court of King Louis XIV. The French king supplied James with military and financial aid. The supporters of King James, known as Jacobites, raised a large army in Ireland. Irish Catholics flocked to the cause, in the hope that a victory for James might reverse all the misfortunes of the Cromwellian settlement. James set sail for Ireland with a well-supplied fleet, accompanied by experienced French officers to help him defeat the supporters of William, who were known as Williamites. Irish Protestants chose to support William and staunchly defended Derry and the Erne Valley against the Jacobites. Their victories allowed William to use Ulster as a secure base to form his large multinational army, consisting of approximately 35,000 Irish, English and Scottish Protestants, along with experienced Dutch troops, Huguenots, Danes and mercenaries from other European countries. In 1690, William's army marched south and won a key victory at the Battle of the Boyne in County Meath. Although relatively few casualties were suffered on either side, the defeat caused James to rethink his strategy and he returned to France. As a result of their victory at the Boyne, the Williamites effectively gained control of the eastern half of Ireland. Though James had fled, his Irish Catholic supporters, led by men like Patrick Sarsfield, decided to continue the war. The River Shannon now became the key frontier, as the Jacobites held the vital strategic castles of Athlone and Limerick. In mid-July 1690, a 7,500-strong Williamite force commanded by the Scottish General James Douglas, attacked Athlone. The castle was defended by 2,000 men, led by the experienced veteran Colonel Richard Grace. He ordered the abandonment of the eastern part of Athlone town and withdrew his forces over the Shannon and broke down the bridge behind him. When he was summoned to parley terms for surrender, he defiantly fired his pistol in the air and declared that was the only negotiation he wanted. The Williamites lacked the necessary heavy siege artillery and their field guns made little impression on the strong walls of the castle. Knowing that it would result in many casualties, General Douglas decided against trying to cross the river and once he discovered that the defenders were to be reinforced, 
he lifted the siege and withdrew. The gallant offence of Athlone by Grace and his garrison preserved the line and enabled the Jacobites to continue fighting the war for another year. For Athlone, the greatest test was yet to come. The Great Siege of Athlone In the summer of 1691, the Williamites returned to Athlone to renew their attempt to capture the castle and forge a bridgehead across the Shannon that would allow them to enter Connacht. This time their army was 20,000 strong, and it was accompanied by the largest artillery train yet seen in Ireland, with 32 heavy siege cannons and six mortars. The army was commanded by the experienced Dutch general Goddard van Ried van Ginkel. At the outset, the Jacobite governor of Athlone was Colonel Nicholas Fitzgerald, who had 1,500 men. In contrast to Grace's defence the previous year, Fitzgerald made an attempt to hold the east town against the Williamites. He needed to delay the Williamites to allow the new Jacobite army commander, the French Marquis de Saint-Roux, to muster his forces and advance from the west. Kinkel used his cannon to breach the eastern defences, forcing the defenders to fall back. As they crossed the river, they smashed down two of the arches of the bridge. Kinkel was now confronted by the wide river, a broken bridge and determined defenders on the opposite bank. Sanru took position on the western side of Athlone with the full Jacobite field army of 20,000 men. The troops were posted to garrison duty in relays. The garrison now faced the full weight of the Williamite artillery. For days, thousands of cannonballs, bombs and stones were blasted at the Jacobite defences in the west town. It was the heaviest bombardment in Irish history prior to the 20th century. The riverside defence works were levelled and much of the east wall of the castle was beaten down. The town itself was reduced to rubble. The defenders were dangerously exposed. Stone debris and masonry, smashed into lethal fragments by cannon, flew through the air. One survivor described the scene. With the balls and bombs flying so thick, that spot was hell on earth. By the end of the seventh day, West Athlone was in ruins. Under cover of the bombardment, a group of Williamite engineers began to lay planks across the broken arches of the bridge to prepare for a frontal assault by Hinkle's army. An Irish sergeant of dragoons named Costume and a band of ten volunteers armed themselves with axes, picks and crowbars. They rushed from behind the remnants of the fortifications to smash down the nearly completed bridge. In response, the Williamite artillery once again roared across the bridge, accompanied by deadly volleys of musket fire. The incredibly brave volunteers managed to break away some of the timbers, but when the musket smoke cleared, all eleven men, including the valiant Sergeant Costion, lay dead. Inspired by their bravery, another band of volunteers rushed to break the bridge. Again, they were met with a hail of musketry. Most of the party were casualties, but they managed to complete the destruction of the repair works, thwarting the Williamite assault plan. 
Our beams were laid over and partly planked, but the enemy detached a sergeant costume who, with ten men, came over the bridge to ruin our works. All of them were slain. And yet this did not discourage as many more from setting out and throwing down our planks and beams, despite all our firing and skill. They left their lives as testimonies of their valor. Ever resourceful, Ginkle explored the possibility of an assault across the old ford that had given Athlone its name. Noticing the increased activity, the Jacobites once again prepared to defend their positions. When Ginkle saw the renewed lines of defense, he postponed the assault. This encouraged the Jacobite commanders. Saint-Roux and Dusson were convinced that Ginkle was about to raise the siege and withdraw. They ignored warnings that the Williamites were preparing to renew the attack. On the afternoon of the 10th of June, the Jacobites were caught by surprise when, to the sound of the church bell, the Williamite grenadier companies rapidly advanced across the old ford. General Hugh Mackay, who commanded the operation, ordered his grenadiers, Forward! And others were to follow after I had told them to close ranks to sword point in the water, to fire only at point-blank range, and to use their muskets as clubs if they lack swords or bayonets. The grenadiers had to wade through the ford with the water flowing up to their chests in places as they held their muskets aloft. The water flowed rapidly and was full of large stones. It came up to my belt, and although the breach was muddy and wet, our men climbed across it, helping each other. The grenadiers were led by Colonel Gustavus Hamilton. As they gained the opposite bank of the river, they took the defenders by surprise, hurling their grenades and charging into the breach. They moved so quickly that the shocked garrison retreated in the face of their speed and aggression. Immediately the victors manned the fortifications on the west side of the town to prevent the Jacobite army encamped outside from mounting a counterattack. Meanwhile, the Williamites repaired the bridge allowing troops to advance across it to reinforce the grenadiers. When Saint-Roux saw the strength and deployment of the Williamite forces, he abandoned any attempt at a counterattack. Despite the heroic defence of the town, after eleven hard days, Athlone had fallen to Hinkle and the Williamites. Saint-Roux led the remains of the Jacobite forces further into Connacht, where they were heavily defeated at the bloody Battle of Ockram, just two weeks later. People of the Siege The Siege of Athlone was part of a large European war and featured soldiers and statesmen from a number of European countries including Ireland, England, Scotland, France, Denmark, Holland and more. The great hero of the first Siege of Athlone was Colonel Richard Grace. He succeeded in defending Athlone against the 7,500-strong Williamite army. He refused surrender terms and fired his pistol and declared that he would defend Athlone until he had eaten his old boots. In the face of such pugnacious defiance, after a week, the Williamites withdrew. Grace had succeeded in preventing the Williamites from crossing the Shannon. By 1691, a younger governor had replaced him, 
but Grace was still present in the garrison and was killed in action during the Second Siege. He is buried in St. Mary's Churchyard. The overall commander of the Jacobite forces, Charles-Charmont Marquis de Saint-Roux, was an experienced French general who had been sent to Ireland by the French king, Louis XIV. He had a reputation for courage and was an inspirational figure that quickly won the respect and admiration of his army. However, he was not a successful commander in Ireland. After the loss of Athlone, he rallied his army to fight nearby at Ockram. For a time, his army put up a stout resistance, but his unlucky death at the height of the action, when a cannonball removed his head, led to a catastrophic Jacobite defeat. The defence of Athlone during the Second Siege was led by Jean de Bonac, Marie Dusson, a French lieutenant-general. His defence of Athlone was initially successful, but the final Williamite attack took him by surprise. Rushing from the camp outside the town, he was knocked over and trampled into the ground as he tried to rally the fleeing garrison. After Ockram, he succeeded Saint-Roux as army commander, but his position was little more than nominal. After the end of the war, he encouraged a large part of the Jacobite army to go to France, where he resumed his own military career. One of the most tangible figures from the Second Siege was the Jacobite Dragoon Sergeant Costume, who hailed from East Ulster. He became a celebrated hero for his heroic and self-sacrificing attempts to destroy the repaired bridge. He remains an inspirational figure in Irish history, and following Irish independence, the army barracks of Athlone was renamed Costume Barracks in his honour. The Duke of Württemberg was a German aristocrat and lieutenant-general who served in the Danish army. He commanded the Danish corps sent to Ireland in 1690 and took part in all the major engagements thereafter. At Athlone, during the final assault, he crossed the river on the shoulders of his grenadiers. He died of complications from an old head wound in 1701. The commander of the Williamite army was a Dutch aristocrat, Goddard van Reed van Ginkel. He had gained experience of war as part of the defence of the Netherlands against the French invasion. He quickly rose through the ranks to the position of Lieutenant General before embarking for Ireland. As commander of the Williamite army, he gained a reputation as a successful and capable, if sometimes cautious, general. He captured Athlone, won the subsequent Battle of Ockram, and secured the surrender of Galway and Limerick. As well as his military talent, he was also a skilled negotiator, and his dealings with the Irish were considered to be honourable and fair. King William rewarded him for his victories in Ireland with the titles of Earl of Athlone and Baron of Ockram. In 1692, he resumed his military career on the continent and was appointed Field Marshal of the Dutch Army shortly before his sudden death in 1703. As harrowing as the siege of Athlone was for combatants of both sides, imagine how traumatic it must have been to the townspeople. Before Hinkle marched west after the retreating Jacobites, he ordered that the streets of the town be cleared of rubble and that all the dead receive a burial. Food shortages in the winter of 1690-91 had already taken their toll on the people and their property. 
and the siege and its aftermath greatly exacerbated the effects. The siege forced the civilian population to leave Athlone, and the Williamite occupation deterred them from returning. The Williamites rounded up any remaining livestock and consumed any available supplies. The refugees also found no welcome in the Jacobite army, which could spare nothing to support the civilians. Caught between opposing forces, destitute civilians had nothing but grass and roots to eat, or, if they were lucky, the carcasses of dead horses. Path to Modernity After the siege, life in Athlone slowly began to return to normal. However, the town suffered another catastrophic setback in 1697, when a lightning strike caused an explosion in the castle's magazine where the gunpowder was stored. The explosion destroyed most of the western part of the town flattening buildings that had only recently been repaired. The town, however, recovered from the destruction and began to grow in size. A visitor in 1709 described Athlone as a handsome large town. Two early educational establishments were founded around this time, Athlone Classical School and Athlone English School. By the mid-18th century, Catholic religious orders began to open further schools in the town. The castle was repaired, with a large army barracks constructed close by. The castle was re-fortified during the Napoleonic Wars between Britain and France from 1793 to 1815, as it still remained a vital strategic base that guarded the key crossing point of the Shannon. Many of the artillery positions and musket loops that lined the castle walls were added at this time. The army barracks has long been a key component of life in Athlone. In the 19th century, the barracks could accommodate 1,600 soldiers. There was only very limited accommodation in the barracks for families, forcing many wives and children to live outside the barracks, often in squalor. Fairs, markets, trade, milling, distilling, brewing and the manufacture of felt hats were the basis of the developing town's economy. Athlone also grew in importance as a communication centre as transport networks were established that linked Athlone to other major towns across Ireland. The regular stagecoach services from Dublin increased the number of inns in the town. The arrival of the railway in 1851 cemented Athlone's role as a transport and trade hub that linked the east and west of Ireland. With access to transportation, industry began to flourish in the town, and woolen and cotton mills were established. Thanks to the increased wealth of the town, new schools and churches of all denominations were established by the end of the 19th century. The Church of St. Peter and Paul, opposite the castle, was the last church to be constructed, and it opened in 1937. This striking building has become an iconic structure in Athlone. Athlone owes its existence to its location on a convenient crossing point on the Mid-Shannon, where the river was easily forded. Rivers were historically important for the carriage of goods and people, 
The Athlone Ford and adjoining shallows prevented through navigation, forcing boats to unload either above or below the town. In the 1750s, as part of a government scheme to improve passage on the inland waterways, a bypass canal was built on the west side of the town. It was little used and fell into disrepair. In the 1840s, a fresh scheme was initiated by the Shannon Commissioners, who appointed Thomas Rhodes, a leading English civil engineer, to plan and supervise the works. Rhodes dredged the Shannon at Athlone, erected a dam to maintain water levels through the town, with a lock to facilitate the passage of boats. He also erected extensive stone quays, with a new bridge with an opening span at its west end. These developments had the potential to make Athlone a significant inland port. However, within a few years, the railways arrived. And although commercial trading on the river continued onto the 1960s, volumes were small. Today, in the summer months, the navigation works and docks are extensively used by tourist and pleasure craft. A building located close to the castle was the Father Matthew Temperance Hall, now Luan Gallery. This building was originally constructed in 1897. The hall hosted events that promoted a sober workforce for the Athlone Woolen Mill, which was situated across the river where the Radisson Hotel stands today. Over the years, the building has been used as a cinema, town hall and public library. It was given a new lease of life when it was adapted and refurbished as Luan Gallery. The Visual Art Gallery was opened to the public in November 2012 and features an exhibitions programme of both contemporary and traditional art. In November 1903, a grand concert was held in the Father Matthew Hall. The performing artists included Lily Foley and John McCormack, both local musical champions. From their first meeting in Athlone, John and Lily became great friends and later married in 1906. John went on to become John Count McCormack, the internationally renowned tenor and the town's most celebrated son. Born in Athlone in 1884, he became one of the leading vocal artists of the early 20th century. His talent was internationally recognised, and he played to enormous crowds in America and Europe. In recognition of his fame, devout Catholicism and philanthropy, Pope Pius IX honoured him with the title of Papal Count. Amongst his best-known recordings is Il Mio Tesoro from Mozart's Don Giovanni, which demonstrates his incredible breath control. He was renowned for being able to sing 64 notes in one breath. Other famous recordings are Le Donne Immobile from Verdi's Rigoletto, and popular ballads such as the evocative I Hear You Calling Me and the iconic World War I song It's a Long Way to Tipperary. He retired from the stage in 1938, but during World War II he returned to perform in a number of concerts in support of the work of the Red Cross. Life in Rural Ireland Like much of rural Ireland, the people of Athlone and the surrounding countryside were largely self-sufficient until recent decades. 
For centuries, much of their food, drink, footwear, clothing, fuel, furniture, horse harnesses, carts, boats, tools and pipes were produced locally by workers and craftsmen. However, by the mid-19th century, Athlone became more connected to the rest of the country through increased transport links. Mass-produced factory goods were imported via the inland waterways, railways and eventually asphalt roads. However, the old ways did not completely die out, and servicing and repairing the new mechanical products required the development of new skills. Athlone itself became more industrial, and a number of textile mills and furniture factories were established in the town. One of the industries located close to Athlone was the clay pipe factory at Knockcrohery in County Roscommon. Eight kilns were in existence in 1832, and they produced from 72,000 to 144,000 pipes per week, fetching a shilling each on the market. Despite the growing industrialization, the majority of people in Athlone's hinterland depended on agriculture. Until the late 20th century, farming was the backbone of the Irish economy, and it remains a very important industry to this day. Farming methods change little over the centuries. Most farmers mix their activities between stock-rearing, dairying, poultry-keeping, haymaking, vegetable-growing, turf-cutting and grain production. Energy was provided by horses, donkeys and manpower. Individual farmers needed a wide variety of practical skills to operate their enterprises. For many centuries, farming was a sociable occupation dependent on family support at all times and interdependent with neighbours for such activities as haymaking and harvesting. The successful gathering of the harvest was a time of communal feasting and celebration. Children would be expected to help on the farm and when they returned from school there was always a long list of chores. Cleaning out the cowshed, putting fresh straw in the henhouse and collecting eggs. The gradual introduction of machinery transformed rural life easing drudgery and increasing yields, but also lessening interdependence and making farming a more isolated occupation. Farmers' incomes dramatically increased when Ireland joined the European Commission in 1973. One of the biggest transformations for the rural population of Ireland was the dramatic changes in land ownership that started at the turn of the 20th century. Until this time, Ireland was largely owned by a small number of wealthy families whose incomes came from the rents paid by the tenants who occupied their land. The gentry, as they were called, resided in impressive country mansions filled with beautiful objects and staffed by servants. Inheritance was through the male line, with daughters marrying within their own class. Younger sons were expected to make their living in the army, the colonies or the church. This structure was overturned by the Land Acts, which transferred land ownership to the tenant farmers. Athlone today is a modern town, and the key employers in the region show its role in the larger global economy. Large multinational pharmaceutical and healthcare companies are some of the key employers in the region today, and the Athlone Institute of Technology puts the town at the cutting edge of modern research.
conclusion. Thank you for joining us as we walk through time in Athlone. From its earliest origins, innovation and change have swept up the River Shannon and made Athlone a key crossing point and frontier. From the hunter-gatherers and first farmers who used Athlone as a ford in the distant, prehistoric past, to the armies of King William who brought a new social order to Irish life, Athlone has been central to the story of Ireland. Today, Athlone is at the very heart of Ireland's ancient east and at the centre of a myriad of fantastic events and activities. It is the perfect place to base yourself, to enjoy, escape, explore and engage with the best that Ireland has to offer.